Daria Carson Dusan. I'm the subject librarian for Romance Languages and Literature and Latin American Studies. And I found out about you when you came above ground when I saw that you had funding and I saw that poster. So I was just curious. So I read the book and asked you. Great. Um, I'm Lady Chen. Uh, I am from East Asian Languages and Cultures Department. Um, I've been uh, working on my uh, second book manuscript, which is also about memory of um, traumatic memories of the Mao era uh, in the Chinese context. So um, this reading group has been tremendously uh, helpful, uh, you know, in guiding me through, um, you know, memory uh, scholarship and also in uh, reading um, alongside the um, the Maoist atrocities, the Holocaust. So it's been tremendously helpful. Um, my name is Tabea Linhardt. I teach in the Spanish department. I'm also for national and area studies. I mainly work on 20th century Spain, but also on the Holocaust and Jewish studies. And yeah, I've been involved in this group for the for the third year now. It has been really wonderful and eye-opening for me to to listen to my colleagues' work in other parts of the world or other periods and time I know nothing about. So it's been a really really good experience. I'm Annika Walke, I'm a postdoc in International Area Studies, um, and I came to Washu last year and pretty much immediately joined this group um, by Tabea. Um, partly because my work is on the Holocaust in Eastern Belarusia, so I'm dealing with um, questions of memory in the Soviet context especially. But even more so, I'm working with oral histories, so I'm very interested in, in issues of individual memory, how that correlates with social dimensions of commemoration and memory and remembering. So some of the works that we read in this group were in, in some way refreshing, or ref refresher for me, because I've read them before, but I've also learned a lot of new things, for example, about Letty's work in, in China, um, thinking about collective and mass atrocities, how they affect um, societies nowadays. And reading a novel was a very new <laughs> adventure, but I greatly really enjoyed it. I never read um, Sibyl before, although I should have probably a few years ago. Um, so I'm glad we're talking about this now. Um, cool. uh, my name is Corey Twitchell, and I'm a graduate student in the German department. And uh, my advisor is Aaron McLaughlin, who um, is, I guess, a, what, what would you call a founding member of all of this. And when I came back from Berlin and had sort of solidified a dissertation on working on post-Holocaust uh, German-Jewish literature. Uh, she suggested that I tag along, basically, to um, get a sense for how um, post-memory is being discussed today. And it's been a really helpful way to see not only how other disciplines are dealing with certain questions that have been raised within Holocaust studies, but also how po the, the very notion of post-memory has kind of taken on a life of its own in um, various contexts. And this has been really awesome. So. I'm Pamela Barmash. I'm a professor of biblical studies in the Department of Jewish, Islamic, and Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. Uh, I have two trajectories in my research. One is in ancient law, but the other is in history and memory. I'm interested in cultural memory, uh, how history is reshaped by later concerns. Uh, I've written on the 10 lost tribes of ancient Israel uh, in history and memory, uh, and how what actually happened is reshaped by later needs and then reshaped again uh, by in later centuries, and then, yes, reshaped uh, even more times. I'm co-editing a book uh, on the exodus in the Jewish experience, how has an event 3,000 plus years ago been reshaped, reimagined, transformed, how elements at the margin become central and how uh, other elements central at one time uh, move to the margin. So I'm interested in reshapings, recrystallizations, reworkings, and reimaginings. And this uh, group has been fantastic, uh, you know, dealing with generally modern history that's so much far ahead of what I actually uh, do my research. It's almost like science fiction. Um, uh, but sadly, a catastrophe happens again and again in human history. And uh, trying to walk through the darkness 
and find a way through the darkness, or perhaps in biblical idiom, uh, idiom uh, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death mm-hmm. or the valley of deepest darkness, to walk through it without stumbling too much and too terribly, uh, has always been part of the human experience. Uh, and so for me to uh, hear uh, and share the research of other scholars uh, and the ideas and, and uh, ultimate questions uh, that they have to deal with has been uh, very satisfying, fulfilling, and has opened new vistas for me. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm just going to propose we're going to steal Pamela's term of re-crystal- recrystallization, which is absolutely wonderful, I think, a way to, to think about remembering of the, of, about this novel also. Um, so last year, we discussed a number of literary texts mm-hmm. also sometimes, and we text uh, Bible passages also with, with Pamela's help. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it was really interesting, I think, to look at literature produced in different parts of the world and how it, it mm-hmm. spoke to us about memory. I was thinking, I cannot quite remember, talking about memory, how we decided to read this novel. I don't know. Who? I think it, 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 it might have been me. Jennifer might have been me, but I honestly thought that the novel was about the train station in Paris. <laughs> I, really, I really thought it was my, my ignorance. Um, it was a complete surprise to me. And I don't know why, maybe I just made it up or something. I was convinced about the But there has been it a lot, has of a lot to passages do with, on yeah, about trains. trains and trains. So, um, so, and on that theme of not remembering why we chose that, um, this novel, when I was chatting with Jennifer during the summer about what we're going to be doing this, mm-hmm. this year, and we'll do some planning towards the end of the meeting mm-hmm. too. Um, but we were talking about how interesting it is to talk about forgetting also, mm-hmm. when we talk about memory and post-memory or transnational approaches to, to memory, to think about forgetting also, and what forgetting really implies and what it is. Yeah, you know, since I've, I've been uh, thinking about, uh, you know, our group, which is a post-memory uh, mm-hmm. studies group, and this, this novel, and, and I was thinking about this question of uh, generation or generational memory. Remember last time we were talking about you know, the 1.5 generation, mm-hmm. the second generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my real question is not so much as how the, whether we should determine this is a 1.5 generation or <coughs> second generation memory, but how is the notion generation important or how is it not important? Mm-hmm. And how do we determine? Because in my own work, um, I struggle a lot with this generation question. Um, and like what constitutes a generation? Yeah, what yeah. constitutes yeah. a generation? And and then the one point five versus second, mm-hmm. you know, with a zero point five <laughs> difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I and and in in the context of this novel, how is that important, or at all? The issue of generation, mm-hmm. like you know, he's a child. You yeah. know, his suppressed memories and and so on. I, I don't know, because this whole novel really is about his journey of slowly allowing his suppressed memories to to come back. Mm-hmm. These traumatic memories. Yes, his traumatic yeah. memory, yeah. and then how this the suppression of memory has caused his melancholia, his his depression, you know, deep depression, isolation, all of that. These are all like diseases or illnesses because of he was suppressing this trauma, trauma that he remembered. To just an aside about the first generation, one point of generation, um, I think one of the books on our list for the fall is Rubens Lema who comes up with the whole term for uh-huh. first generation, one point of generation. So that's mm-hmm. something I think we're going to keep on discussing mm-hmm. also. But it's funny that you mentioned generation because you know when the book begins and you have the narrator who encounters Austerlitz and you have mm-hmm. the different layers. This is mm-hmm. what this person says. Austerlitz tells the narrator. So all these different layers, and it's, mm-hmm. it's really and the, the the digressions and the architectural histories and the train stations, of course. So um, it's really hard, you know, to get at his story ultimately. So I mm-hmm. think all these different layers of narrative that are in the novel also show that you know defining. You know, where do you place the beginning of an every generation is quite difficult. Yeah. So yeah. much of the story is based on memory also. Even when yeah. they're repairing the building and objects, they were like, Oh, and that was destroyed. Oh, that's yeah. no longer there. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is what I remember. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the pre-war, post-war. But, yeah. but, but isn't that how people remember places? Mm -hmm. They don't say the current name, right? They say, that's the place where such and such used yeah. to be. Yeah. Exactly. Or they call it by its old name, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That people haven't, that aren't supposed to use or haven't used in decades and decades and decades. Mm -hmm. But that is how people place themselves. With, so it's a mapping with, with memory. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I moved to the South 40 recently and I was trying to run out to the post office. People told me the post office is where the police station used to be. Like, that doesn't help me. I don't know where the police station used to be. Yeah. But that's, that's another thing that's so important about this book also about places and locations and yeah. what they mean and what do you do when there is, when you go to, to explore this, um, well, this camp in the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. in Belgium and how the meaning of these different places changes and let's say to, 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 to this question of like the 1.5 when I think of the 1.5 generation I think of I mean I've read that piece by Suleiman mm -hmm. which um, I think is definitely worth bringing into yeah, this discussion yeah. I think it's mm -hmm. really interesting because I think she also uses the term with a, a little bit of irony knowing that 1.5 what is 1.5 yeah. to a certain yeah. extent but yeah. I mean Austerlitz would really fit into I mean as a figure as a character mm -hmm. um, fits into that because yeah. the idea I mean the when I think of well, the who fits into that fits into this category? I think of um, the French author um, Georges Perec, mm -hmm. who wrote this novel about um, that is like sort of it alternates chapters, and one chapter is autobiographical, and the next chapter is fictional, mm -hmm. and it, and then it switches in the mm -hmm. middle of it. It has all of these funny little tricks and techniques, and mm -hmm. um, he was a child survivor of the Holocaust and survived by. Um, basically going to hiding in a, um, a school in southern France. Like he, his mother sent him, but he never, then he grows up and never really knows his family, and, but knows something is missing. So it's similar to this. And it's very similar, it's mm -hmm. a similar story. So when I think of like sort of this category, I definitely like would put mm -hmm. him in, I mean, he, the parallel there is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, as far as like, I mean, when I think of 1.5, it's like a, a child survivor who of, in this case, the Holocaust, who um, for whatever reason, has this personal ex uh, ex connection to this history, but doesn't really have enough memory of it to really, I mean, there is a personal connection, but yet not. So it's this dissonance, kind of cognitive dissonance that the figure like this has, or a person like this would have, in this case, a fictional character, but um, definitely modeled on something historically. There's a historical reference there, obviously. Okay. So. I think that's how, when Suleiman defined that she says something like, the 1.5 generation is for people who are old enough to remember that something happened. But not happened. responsible. Right. right. So not, they were not before 11, 10, yeah. 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 before then. Yeah. 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 Also not, not, they were not old enough to understand. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Another person who fits in like, is Jorek Becker, the, the, mm -hmm. guy, the um, East German writer who wrote um, Jacob the Liar. Mm -hmm. And he survived with his father in the Ludge Ghetto, mm -hmm. but when, he, when the well, Ghetto was freed or when he... Um, left Poland, he was maybe four or five, and uh, maybe, I can't remember, six or something. He was still a very young child, and so when he, and then when he grew up, his father didn't want to talk about those experiences, so he knew something was there, but never really was old enough to really know it, shall we say. Um, anyway, as far as like 1.5 goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, actually in Chinese, in contemporary Chinese literature, um, that's why this generation is so, I'm so obsessed with it, because most of the the uh, important uh, contemporary Chinese writers fit into the 1.5 category. Mm. They were all children during Mao's era. Mm. Okay. And then they are the most stubborn group of writers who were you know, obsessively writing about all these crazy stories of some unnameable horror or death or violence. Mm. It's, it's, that's... <laughs> but it's an unnamed horror. It's not specifically what happened. Oh, but no, there are tiny little references here mm. and there. You kind of pick it up. Um, and even after, um, you know, now it's, it's almost 30 years since Mao died in 76, they still write about the same old things. It's like they cannot walk out of the shadow of Mao for some mm. reason. Mm. They are forever possessed. <laughs> Here, the interesting part is then that Seba is actually not 
He's, yeah, I was just talking, he was 1944, he was born. Yeah, he was born in 1944, so one year before the end of the war, but he was also born into a family where the father was a Wehrmacht soldier. He mm. was in imprisonment for several mm. years after the war. I see. Um, and he was kind of encountering a silence that I think was very mm. typical for, for German uh -huh. families and for German post-war society. Uh -huh. So in that sense, I think the issue of generation is really interesting mm. to looking at the writer and his writing his novel or publishing in 2001. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 60 years after mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. he's describing here. Um, so I, I kept thinking about why then, why in this way? Because right. he does is talk about um, kind of this history and memory of national socialism after Nazi regime in Europe as something that covers the whole of Europe. Where everyone, we're in Paris, mm -hmm. Belgium, mm -hmm. England, we're in mm -hmm. Czech Republic nowadays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so place and, and generation, I think, just describes the whole novel in, in the sense Interesting. that it encompasses all the generations, but also the whole continent, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's fascinating, I think, to me is his obsession with architecture. Mm -hmm. right? But his obsession with architecture of prisons and lunatic asylums, mm -hmm. right, and not just train stations. I mean, in some sense, his trauma is that he was ripped away from his family, mm -hmm. but then he was put into another family that had a meltdown. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not even the right word for it. Uh, that itself, uh, uh, he was ripped from, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, he wanted to run away to the boarding school, right? Whereas every other student was looking forward to, go to <laughs> vacation. Yeah. He just wanted to stay there yeah. because his new home, and of course he didn't realize it was his new home until one day he's told, well, the name you thought you had, that's not really your name, mm -hmm. right? And they meant to adopt you, but they never got around to it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you bring this up to me that this, his adoptive family, there's only one point I think he talks about, you know, the mother who never really talks, and he mentions that one time he encountered her crying and never mm -hmm. knows and she why she was her hair through her right. hair. Yeah, and then she gets sick and mm -hmm. dies, you mm -hmm. know? So, and there's so much silence also about this family and so much that we, that we don't know And then even at the end when she's covering herself in like this talcum powder, like yeah. mask, mm -hmm. like, just keep it all hidden, keep it all there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of all things, his adopted father is a minister, the one who has to talk mm -hmm. at times of trauma for other families, mm -hmm. right? But then he can't deal with it and he can't speak of it mm -hmm. when it's his own trauma. Right. No, and ends up completely lost himself to father too. Yeah, but I think that's that's very interesting. All these these different just these layers of, of silence in the story that people mm -hmm. you know not because everybody, there's one part that really and he talks about his his childhood. This is early in, all early on in the novel, and he talks about his the house and the room, the windows. They never open the windows. Right? Yeah, so there's this shut. sense of asphyxiation in and the house. It's forever cold. Exactly, it's cold. It's unpleasant. <laughs> And he mentions, I have a different, I have the German edition here, but he talks about um, dreaming of having a door that's locked and he wanted the door to open and this door would be a door to a um, friendlier world. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's page 69 in this one. Oh, in, the, in the German one, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I wish I could find the quote in English, but he is dreaming of, have, of having, you know, this door to a world that's friendlier and um, less alien. I'm not quite sure how they translate that, you know. So the world that he knows in this household in Wales is completely alien and strange. But that should be the the home. And if you think about it, you know, of childhood and childhood fantasies of children dreaming, they want to go to a world that is a little bit more alien than what they know. Mm -hmm. But he is looking for a home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he, he obviously does not find it in, in the family where he grows up. And that's, I think, part of his his search also. You know, I was wondering, uh, when the schoolmaster told him that your real name is, you know, Austerich, uh, Jackie Austerich, um, we, we don't know if the, the foster parents actually have his paper to prove that his name is indeed this, right? Huh. I mean, since that there's no document, as far as I can remember. I think they know. My foster parents, when I entered the school, meant to tell me about my origins in good time for examinations. I but how did the parents, how did the yeah, parents? I don't know, because he talks about how the teacher had so much trouble mm -hmm. getting 
No. Maybe they just... Yeah. They may not have known. I mean, the whole chemotransport process was just very chaotic to some extent. So sometimes yeah. children were just picked up at main station by British families who adopted them, essentially. And just pick them up from the station and, and that's they it. didn't have papers on them mm -hmm. on, and the families didn't want them to know their names. And also the name itself, right? It can yeah, yeah, it's it's not <laughs> yeah. And that makes me wonder if how we should treat this character. Maybe not so much as a character slash person, but a figure. You know, kind of a it's representing Europe something. Yeah. <laughs> or this collective. Yeah, you know, there were moments when I couldn't keep apart Austerlitz and the narrator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like I, I, I'm still not sure whose story I'm the, actually reading. I really like the mission about the writer in some ways too, because mm -hmm. like it was his way in to tell the story. He could have never told it in Austerlitz complete voice. Right. Mm -hmm. He needed that third person. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then Austerlitz said, said this. Yeah. But said you only that, get yeah. that every four pages. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. And then how the end of the novel, it becomes, like, it's almost like the two just emerge into yeah. one. That's what I felt at some point. Yeah. Yeah, we're really, we're talking about one person with two yeah. identities. Yeah. Because you don't know anything about the narrator. Nothing. He has a problem with his eyes. His eyes, really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of need that external self to kind of rediscover yeah. your own history. Because I think that... Um, somebody mentioned already the fortresses and the architecture. Mm. I mean, terrorism was a fortress, or is a fortress, mm. essentially. So I think there is a very close relationship between the architectural research that he does, and then mm -hmm. he goes to all these prisons and looks mm -hmm. at how they're structured, and then mother very likely perished in one of those, mm -hmm. or lived there for a while before she was deported to Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there is a very unconscious, subconscious, I don't know. It's always very striking to me, uh, not quite at the end, but a little bit before, he talks about Theresienstadt mm -hmm. and the difference between the reality mm -hmm. and then it's all cleaned up, mm -hmm. right, when the Red Cross comes to visit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the, the whole film mm. turned into slow motion and <laughs> that is you. But it's such a wonderful passage. Well, that was actually a great soundtrack because I thought that yeah. even like yeah, he was trying to get an yeah. image of his mother. Of his which mother. He have. Right. Yeah. And that's something I mean, just from my own work and during oral history with survivors mm -hmm. in the former Soviet Union, mm -hmm. some people don't have any single picture of their family because mm -hmm. it was all destroyed during the war and they couldn't take anything mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. um, so some of them actually told me in an interview that they're afraid that they will at some point forget how their times looked like. and so, People talk about the moment when they realize they don't remember what it looked like. But it was yeah. the most frightening thing for them to realize at the end of the war. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, I think, was really interesting that you really see this death, desperate search for mm -hmm. an image there. Mm -hmm. um, like, there's, I think, they even have the, the print of the slow motion or something. Yeah, it's yeah. towards the end. Yeah, towards the end, very end. This lack of, of a solid memory, shall we say, as a little but this sort of obsession with architecture with places I think goes along I mean obviously those things are intertwined and I for me it's really about this this sort of obsession with knowing these details these historical <clears throat> details and particularly with respect to a building which seems to have a certain kind of historical continuity where all these mm -hmm. other things are filled with breaks and gaps and elisions and mm -hmm. what have you. Um, this obsession with, okay, this fortress, for example, this fortress in, um, in Belgium, in Belgium which, has this really, which in World War II has this very um, sort of horrific history, mm -hmm. is also tied to an even larger horrific history <laughs> with the history of colonization right. in, yeah. um, in um in, in the Congo, yeah. in, in Africa, mm. the Belgians' relationship with Africa. But what I think is kind of wonderful about it is that he really, or Sebald, or the narrator, whoever wants to say, avoids this whole kind of flattening of history, where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, well, the, you know, horrible things have happened throughout history. Or what, I mean, he's not, he doesn't take away the specificity of mm -hmm. things, but it's more like it's about, you know, it, I don't know, it's very Benjaminian, it's about layering, mm -hmm. it's about, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but the fact that he has to replace what he doesn't know with what he can grasp, and that's, you know, it's never satisfying. I mean, because he's filling this traumatic space with 
Um, oh, with information. With information, yeah, yeah. yeah. With this kind of concentric, yeah. this building of like concentric circles. And, and all this detail even, you know, about these yeah. different buildings, you know, and it kind of wanders across it. Right? So. Actually, also said that this obsession with history actually doesn't... Get, get us any closer to the, no. the fruit when he talks about the, mm. the Austro-Battle, which mm-hmm. 72. Essentially, when he talks about his history teacher who can like retell the battle, mm-hmm. what happened when, mm-hmm. and who moved where, when, at what point. Um, but it also talks about that inevitably will also essentially always resort to images that are always already there so they don't get us any closer to what actually happened. And then saying it on 72 on the top, kind of images at which we keep staring while the truth lies elsewhere, away from it, somewhere yet, as yet undiscovered. Um, so I think this whole search, he knows he won't get any closer to the truth, although he can find pictures, maybe. He yeah. can find buildings, maybe. Um, but it doesn't, it won't tell him who he is, yeah. what he's actually looking for. And, and does he ever actually publish this? Because I think there was a point where he says he, he, he makes many notes, mm-hmm. right, in many drafts, mm-hmm. right, but he can't just, he can't pull it together. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and now he has too much information because he's visited, I don't know, every train station and lunatic asylum mm-hmm. and prison mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and fortress. And, and how do you pull that all together? Mm-hmm. Right? It's a search. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's been published. I mean, you can put it together if, like, you're the <laughs> I like that. To some extent, I think at the end of the war, I think it felt like that to many people. But despite Austerlitz's searching, he can never pull it together. Mm-hmm. And so he's sort of endlessly wandering from fortress to yeah, death to camp example. to yeah. railroad to. Yeah. Okay. With his rucksack. Yeah, I was going to say about that. Yeah, which is which he's had since a little child. Yeah, but there's one that's taken away from him, and then he gets the other one, right? Or am I getting confused? Because when he talks about when he when the family adopts him at the train station, that they, he is described as this little child with a backpack, which then eventually disappears. And then he, when the narrator account, mm-hmm. encounters him, he takes his always, and then, then we have the nice photo. I mean, mm-hmm. I might. Yeah, yeah, we have that photo too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but he always has that, you know, and which really is such a nice image for the wandering, you know, like the endless mm-hmm. wandering also. Which is actually like in the, um, the uh, German National Archives in, um, uh, or literary archives in, in Marbach, mm. they have these sort of aff- affects, you know, when someone has left there. Mm. When writers leave their papers, they often sometimes leave these, like, personal memorabilia mm. things behind, and Austerlitz left his estate with Marbach, and Seba. one of the things... Uh, yeah, Seba. <laughs> Seba left his... Well, this is where things are... Exactly, well, yeah, this that's is exactly where it's what the book is. Because yeah. this looks yeah. exactly like what's in the museum. Uh-huh. That belonged to Zaybald and was one of his when he would go on. Oh, his, really? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that's what's sort of fascinating. Is and that, there's another one. Is this a picture? Is this a of, it's a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, on page, one, yeah. page four. Uh-huh, is this uh-huh. also the, or is this actually a photo? And we don't know the origin of these know. photos, really. Yeah. Yeah. But which is also another aspect of this we might want to talk about. But um, this very, well, in my opinion, very well could be a photo of Zaybald's own his own his own paper. personal yeah. property that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, was very much a part of his right, like sort of writerly mm-hmm. personality when he would go on these walks throughout um, England um, and, the, and there's another novel that he wrote uh, called Rings of Saturn that is much more I think autobiographical shall we say or mm-hmm. obviously autobiographical if I remember correctly but that's all about him walking and it's, a, it's a sort of this travel and this the, and these sort of concentric patterns but it's a slightly different sort of telling of it but anyway like the bat, mm-hmm. like the rucksack when I saw that I'm like oh I've seen that in person and <laughs> looks a little <laughs> looks almost the same <laughs> Yeah, good question. I think that's the what's the, mm-hmm. the that's the gap that's missing is what we can never get. Like I, that. I mean, it's a little simple, perhaps, or simplify or simplistic, but it's um, you know that's what he can't get to. I mean, if that's the the, tra- the traumatic memory that he can't get mm-hmm. to, and yes, everything else is built around it. I mean, that's what I think the motion never gets him where he wants to go. Or at least that's how I would probably read that. No, I, I agree, and I think that's that's where this novel when it came out was, was so important because I think it showed that 
a lot of the debate going mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. especially in Germany at the time. Mm -hmm. So we have to move on. Like, let's be done with the past. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, that it's impossible. Like it's it's impossible for the victims and their their children and the following generation, second generation, the third generation. But it's even impossible for families like Sables. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the perpetrators' family, if you want to make it very blunt. Right. Um, so that there are so many unanswered questions and problems that go all go back to the genocide, to the persecution, mm -hmm. and, and to the system of oppression that it can never be closed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I think you make a really good point. It really disappears um, as a even though he spends all this time in England, like this appears, Zabot's work sort of appears at this time in German um, cultural life when this, uh, yeah, when this exact point is is raging in the press and in, and all of this cultural production is sort of obsessed with this question in a, in a way that it hadn't been in the past or hmm. not obviously so. But and in that moment, I think it's also interesting that it was written by um, German, Austrian, yeah. who doesn't mm -hmm. live in Germany. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Displaced. Yeah. yeah. And there are like a bajillion dissertations that have been written about Sebald, so yeah. <laughs> that's also fun. Also, it's uh, also, you know, like the Sebald, not Sebald, also it's the academic who writes, writes something. Yeah. You can't mm. seem to get it finished, you know. That never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm also interested in how he describes memories and how bits and pieces of memories kind of just appears or resurfaces. It is, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's like like the the you know the shadow and you know the it, it, the most dramatic moment is when he was in this waiting room and then all of a sudden it came back to him except for the almost for the first time his suppressed memory suddenly he it started to make sense to him. That's funny because he's searching and searching visually all the time. Yeah, but when everything yeah. comes together, it's it's a hard story. Yeah, on the radio. Yeah. It's just so interesting because he's constantly taking photos and the documenting visual. everything, yeah. trying to figure mm -hmm. out his past, but he hears it comes together that way. Mm -hmm. It just makes me wonder because, you know, we're talking about memory. What is memory, really? I mean, it's funny because, you know, he's into these photographs, mm -hmm. but as we know, photographs can be faked. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. right. But there was a time when if you had a photograph, that was proof. Right. right, but no, no, that's not so. Mm -hmm. right. It did bother me. This is very trivial, but actually, in my line of work, it's huge. There are the credits for the photos. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, that's something. No, absolutely. I went that, looking yeah. and searching, no. and I went looking for information about the man who was credited. So, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I know it's a novel, but I couldn't let it go. I was like, where are your image credits? <laughs> but that's exactly it, and that's, I think, the other piece of that is that he's playing with us a little bit as his readers. Like, what is this that I'm... I mean, he always describes and credits it in the story. But in this way that, and again, is that even credit? I mean, credit, you know, what is credible? But I sort of, I don't know, I read that as a kind of metaphor for memory itself, actually, because... I mean, I mean, what is memory? I mean, I think what is the most recent research is, you know, memory is in this chemical compound in between synapses mm -hmm. that changes every single time you remember something. Mm -hmm. So memory doesn't even, an individual memory, cultural memory differently, obviously, but mm -hmm. individual memory changes chemically every single time you re-remember -re something, if I understand it correctly. Because so, every time you remember something, you add a little bit, you modify yeah, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Then it becomes totally different from the original moment when that thing happened. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, also, this kind of reminds me the way you know memories are kind of evoked or or summoned. It's like the um, the record we're gonna read. His he uses the word reservoir to describe you know our subconscious like a big reservoir. You know mm -hmm. all the images, the things that you remember would just be stored in the reservoir. And when something triggers, and then something would just you know, surface. Right. right, but you know, that's mm. the difference between hearing and seeing, right? You have an image, it's fixed, right? But when you hear something, it's gone in a moment. And what did you really hear? Mm. Right? Because what you hear, you can't check against but what you, you remember. if you smell something, when you smell it again, you can remember? Well, like the, the proof, but the matter yeah, and all that, yeah, you know, exactly. the taste. Or the taste. Yeah. Uh-huh, or taste. But hearing sounds different. 
right? And it's funny because he ends up in a Welsh village in which he says there was no wireless. <laughs> right, right? So he couldn't have heard anything about what was going on. I... Because hmm. I guess it's in some yeah, valley or something. Yeah, he doesn't hear anything about something. World War Two on the radio or anything. No. I mean, they're completely isolated also. Yeah. And like, I mean, that's why this house, but it never opened a window, you know. I just found it extremely difficult to think about that, that really isolated childhood also. Yeah. But then when he goes to school, I think the world opens up mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. But it's all about learning what happened before World War Two. He doesn't really learn anything. He looks for the Battle of Oblitz and it's really, it's so much I love what Anika was saying about was it Europe being a continent of that is placed into crazy. <laughs> it's I think it's so much a novel about Europe too, you know, and okay. not just World War Two and, and the Holocaust also. It's and it's also so much about what what does Europe mean today also. But also about I mean Great Britain was deeply affected right. by World War Two and yeah. the mm. and everything. Um, yeah. So I think the, the family that that's not trying, that tries not to know anything, yeah. shuts the window and everything, trying mm. not to understand what was happening outside. I think is. Something like a metaphor of the British society, mm. but desperately trying to get away from that war. Mm. Yeah. Um, right, but you know he's distant from it because he's in Wales, right? right? And that yeah, sees himself right. over and against, right? He has a Welsh name, mm -hmm. right? Um, but there were lots of refugees from London who went to other parts of England. It was very hard to get away from it. One of my favorite parts of the novel, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, I just really like it. This is the part when he goes to his friend's house, you know, the naturalist mm -hmm. who have the butterflies mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. this, this yeah, specimen. yeah. Um, and he has all these kind of big like, questions about the natural world, and there is a part, I, mean, I, should, I should have written the page number for the English version down here, but he talks about um, maybe the the butterflies, no, no not about the, the moss and, the, the, yeah. and the, the lettuce growing in the garden. Maybe they also, you know, dream. Maybe they also have a soul or mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. like that. I really liked that part. <laughs> that was my favorite sentence in the entire um, entire novel, too. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what, what, what you made of that. I just, I just liked it. But. Well, I think to some extent, for me, that came back a little bit to the way he talks about Europe as, as the country, like as the land that he remembers, um, that has, it's going to sound a little cheesy, but has a soul, mm -hmm. like that remembers, that knows what's going on. But at some point he also mm -hmm. talks about the, the asylum in, I need a translation, not somewhere, um, but he's wondering whether the walls remember mm -hmm. what happened there. Um, so I think it, it's a lot about like everything remembers essentially. Right. How about the ghosts? Yeah. The people, yeah. the ghosts oh. coming back. Yeah. You know they. And I mean, for me, that came back a little bit to the conversation that recently started in Holocaust scholarship to look at the geography of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. and how landscapes were affected by the war and the genocide, and on the other hand, how to to what extent they actually enabled or facilitated or were, were taken into account by planning the war, by planning the shooting actions and so forth. So mm -hmm. how how place and space actually figure both mm -hmm. in the genocide but also in the memory. So if you go to Poland essentially it's all mass graves. And the whole piece in Europe essentially is a cemetery. Mm. Just like um, it's described. Which is not which is yeah. a lot of words like session within like Shalom. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Right. I mean So I think he's actually a little bit ahead of a lot of the problems. Yeah, yeah. And talking about all the movement across Europe mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. everything essentially is um, affected by mm -hmm. the history. Can we uh, talk a little bit since I know nothing about uh, you know Zibot, I you you mentioned that he is uh, the perpetrators from a perpetrator's family, to put it bluntly. Mm -hmm. um, how how do we how how are we to understand that personal background? Does it mean anything to our reading of his novels? I mean, it depends how you read it. Also. Yeah, but how how. I mean, I can quote a few things that Jennifer sent around after I asked for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and she um, generally shared a few quotes here that she picked up for a class that she was teaching on the 
um, on, the, on his novel on Austerlitz, and um, at some point he said when he was asked about memory and the Holocaust, um, in the history of post-war German writing, for the first 15 or 20 years, people avoided mentioning political persecution, the incarceration and systematic extermination of whole peoples and groups in society. Then, from 1965, this became a preoccupation of writers, not always in an acceptable form. So I knew that writing about the subject, particularly for people of German origin, is fraught with dangers and difficulties. Tactless lapses, moral and aesthetic, can easily be committed. Hmm. It was also clear he could not write directly about the horror of persecution in its ultimate forms, because no one could bear to look at these things without losing their sanity. So you would have to approach it from an angle, and by intimating to the reader that these subjects are constant company. Their presence present shades every inflection of every sentence one writes. If one can make that credible, then one can begin to defend writing about these subjects at all. Um, so he definitely thought about what he's actually doing there as a German hmm. um, in, in putting together this history or novel. How about any lingering sense of guilt? Is there ever this discussion I don't know of, of other works, guilt? Sadly. Um, hmm. But I mean, he, he made a big stir when he published his book about the. The what? Air war. Air war. The air mm. war. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, I mean, because he was primary. He was for first before he was a novelist. He was a, a, a scholar, mm -hmm. and he wrote about yeah the study that he did on air war, air war in Germany, mm -hmm. the memory of that, or, mm -hmm. or the lack of memory of that, was the sort of main the, his sort of main contribution in the field of scholarship. That then that did cause a big stir, and the Germans became world. Um, but to what extent he. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's is to what extent, I mean, there's this question of, there are the actual families who have, who know that their grand, at this point their grandparents probably, or their parents, mm -hmm. or the grandparents' generation committed certain crimes. Mm -hmm. um, for example, there's this, um, from just a couple of years ago, a, um, a documentary called Two or Three Things I Know About Him. Which is up, up the the uh, filmmaker, the documentary filmmaker is making a film about his father, whom he never really knew because he was um, executed after the war for his close relationship with the Nazi regime and for the fact that he was in charge of liquidating Slovakian Jews. Uh, I mean, he was in, he was the ambassador to Slovakia, but he was basically in charge of doing all of this. And so you have families like that who have a very high profile family member. And there, and the way they sort of come to terms or don't come to terms, because the whole film is about how he is really the one sibling that actually deals with this hmm. in a certain kind of way, because the other siblings either emigrate or refuse to even um, consider to touch the memory uh -huh, of uh -huh. the father. That's not the family memory memory mm -hmm. of this wonderful guy who was always really nice to us, et cetera, et cetera. And he's the one family member. So you have these high profile families where. You know, you have a thought, you know, someone who was, who was, you know, a, a, clear, yeah. clearly a, legally speaking, a war criminal, but mm -hmm. this question of guilt, sort mm -hmm. of this cultural guilt, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's been, I don't know, I think, well, this is where I would want Jennifer to be here, because she's <laughs> an expert on all Gaspar's, but, I mean, that started to be talked about even in the 40, late 40s and 50s, but I think it gets kind of, not repressed, well, maybe repressed is the right word, I mean, in a lot of German yeah. circles, and it comes back again and again, historically. Um, and I think with someone like Zabot, you've got, I mean, he's a, I guess you would call him what, a 68er? Probably. Probably. Yeah. I mean, he's uh -huh. this generation of children who would have grown up with a parent or grandparents who were at some point, maybe even they were simple soldiers, soldiers, you know, who maybe were not in charge of, you know, they were not they were not um, perpetrators in this sort of like legal sense, but mm -hmm. they still belong to this generation of people who had some association. Like maybe they wore the Nazi uniform, maybe or what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but very often in these families, this memory gets turned around to oh, dad was actually you no, know, he wasn't just a soldier. No, it's not that simple. He was actually a resistance fighter, or some story gets made up within the family, and I think that's really in some ways what Zabot's generation is trying to counteract, mm -hmm. is this, uh, you know, this cultural gesture toward, oh, well, yeah, something happened, but we're going to obscure or obfuscate what, mm 
is actually happening in the name of like family solidarity or, or this memory of what you know because why do you want I mean you don't want to think of granddad as like a Nazi you know like especially when you yourself don't feel particularly responsible for the historical events of a generation previously I think that's where he's coming from Zimbabwe himself mm-hmm. Um, but I think as, uh, again, this generation is still this kind of, I guess you would say second generation, it was someone like Zabel since he was born in 44, um, they, the, the question of guilt is still very much there, there yeah. and a okay. part of how they want to, or do, I mean, I'm speaking very broadly here, but how they do or don't want to um, deal with this, this, this recent past mm-hmm. and this question of, you know, the, the I mean, because most of these people never heard about, like the word Holocaust never came up in school, mm-hmm. and it was only when they went to university and had very left-leaning professors or student groups that actually said, oh, wait, you know, what, what did happen? And all of this was caught up in like the 68 student movement anyway, this uh-huh. kind of mass, like looking, you know, thinking about how capitalist culture was another expression of fascism, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all of the, the Frankfurt School, all this kind of stuff happening, but um, I, th- I mean, it's really, there's this sense of, we're, there's something we didn't, we haven't dealt with, whereas mm-hmm. I think the third generation, like the grandchildren in Germany are much more, and in Austria, are much more, feel much, they, I mean, very often the first and the third generation kind of have a, have a understanding that the second generation, like the parents' generation don't really because they, in some ways, rebelled against their parents because they never, mm. they felt like they were done this injustice for never mm-hmm, having mm-hmm. been told what happened. Mm-hmm. Like, never, like, the truth of what happened. They had to sort of discover it in this way that became suddenly no longer personal but very political. And that confrontation, I think, is something that, it, that is really difficult for them to, for this generation to come to terms with. I so think they took it upon themselves mm-hmm, to want to mm-hmm. correct yeah. the wrong. And, exactly. And how do you correct a wrong that mm-hmm. you yourself are not responsible for? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that becomes this kind of... So the weight of guilt is, culturally speaking, mm-hmm, is still very much a part of the Zabal generation. And I think that somebody, a figure like Zabal is really still immersed in this, and that's, that's where this comes from. Even though maybe he publishes this in the two, you know, much, much later. Is this his last book? Because mm-hmm. he died, passed yeah. on 2001 and was published in 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think some posthumous work has been published also after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah, Interesting. But, but this was the one that made the, the biggest yeah. hit. Oh, really? I believe uh-huh. so. I see. I think yeah. this conversation actually starts before you can talk about guilt. I think many families mm. just don't know. But yeah, there's yeah. that too. Well, there's yeah. a lack of knowledge right. of any yeah. conversation. Yeah. Like, but my grandfather always heard he was in Norway. But all the men, <laughs> the German men, who've been in Norway during the war, as, as people claim. Right. <laughs> but that's, that's so interesting too about. Um, so I, I can't get any more information. My grandfather's dead now, mm-hmm. nobody else will tell me. Right. Um, so I think that this, this complete lack of willing. Willingness to share any information, I think, mm-hmm. actually comes before you can actually start talking about any responsibility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. I mean, there are the cases where, you so, know, in that sense, I think yeah. this is, you can read this as a parable. You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, he's looking for the identity of the child that mm-hmm. was sent away as, to, mm-hmm. to save it as, as a Jewish child. Um, but in the same way, you can also read it as, as a metaphor for a German. Isn't it true for others in Europe? Right. So everyone was a resistance fighter. Right. Not a collaborator. Yeah. Especially in France, they yeah, were all exactly. resistance. Right. 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 They were all in resistance. Nobody yeah. collaborated. Right. Right. And perhaps you know most people didn't do one thing or the other. They were yeah. just scared. Yeah. yeah. And it's you know you you really bring up and I think it's, it's very clear in this book too. It's so much about family stories. You know mm-hmm. the stories you hear in. You know, in all families, there are certain stories, there are certain narrative patterns also, you know, in mm-hmm. the stories that are told. And every single family story is full of holes. You know, I, in, my, in, my, in my freshman seminar, I'm talking about migration stories, right? So I asked them, you know, write a migration story. Many of them brought about their grandparents. And the stories, they were all very but they were full of holes everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? And, which is like, this is common, you know, there is nothing wrong with it, but that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So what stories are transmitted, you know, via parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles, it doesn't really matter. You give, you provide a specific narrative pattern. This happened, this happened, and this happened. But in between, 
mm-hmm. it's never really there. And that's what's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That made me think here of the, maybe because I erroneously thought that it was about the, the train station in Paris. <laughs> but of course, I mean, the whole, the metaphor, not, not just the metaphor, but the, you know, the train stations, the train stations for displaced people, the yeah. trains that are taking people to the death camps all the across yeah. Europe. But then I also thought that, I mean, what really happened in those trips in the trains? You know, for some, we know what happened when people were being deported. You know, we have some information about that. But everybody else who was going back and forth across Europe during World War II in trains and victims, perpetrators, bystanders, and everybody's in between. You know, what happened when people were moving across space in Europe. And I think that's what the novel in a way tries to answer too. I mean, that's why I think trains are so important, not only because I had the wrong idea about the novel, but um, yeah, but there are all these holes in every family history and mm. which he tries to, he being the narrator and also Austerlitz, try to fill obsessively with information, with the mm-hmm. photos, with the maps. But at the end, even at the end of the novel, the holes are still there. Mm-hmm. Even by retracing the steps, you know, taking yeah. the same journey, mm-hmm. mm. still doesn't yield much. Right. And then we have this sort of curious thing, you know, uh, people are interested in the Holocaust. What are they interested in? Do they want to read the histories, <laughs> right? Or do they want to read the literature? Or do they want to look at the pictures? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and these are very sanitized pictures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so yeah. what gets at the reality? What gets at the experience? What resonates with people, right? Uh, and not to mention now you have you know death camps that are tourist experiences, which mm. yeah. I mean, having gone on one of those, I, it seems like utterly bizarre. And then the Where, yeah. I mean, I went to Theresienstadt, mm. you know, so oh, but okay. you know I'm passed up on trips going to Poland for you know scheduling reasons. That you, that you bring up tourism because I think one of the definitions of tourism is that when you when you go on a trip as a tourist, you know what to expect. You know, you know the end of the story before it happens, right? Which is different from from travel or just right. this kind of aimless wandering or kind of circular wandering than what you have in this in this novel too. And that's I think really when a former death camp becomes a tourist attraction, so to speak. I think people might visit thinking, I already know what I'm going to see, you know, certain expectations. Right. Um, but, and there will be tourism, but traveling, you know, even as we see it here, is, is so different because it's so much more open-ended. Mm-hmm. What do you think he put all these photographs in there uh-huh. and drawings? If they are not real, I mean, they're just as fictional as... Well, they're, uh, they're, they're real, but... It reminded me a little bit of, um, I can't remember the title, um, Umberto Eco's, uh, he wrote the, what, the Queen, the Fire Flame Queen of the Lana. It was kind of a semi-autobiographical mm-hmm. novel, and it's filled with the same kind of photos and memories. Mm-hmm. And it's, it kind of was the same technique, I thought. Just every time he described something, there was some kind of photo or image. Mm-hmm. He also did that. And some of the photos were collected by Seabolt and some were taken by him. He, is mm-hmm. that right? Well, it says in the... It says uh, four, it's about the There's another person wood, credited James in Seabolt. Oh. Um, Michael Brandon Jones. Photographic work. Ah, yeah, yeah, Brandon yeah. Jones. The bottom photograph on page five. Well, we know that Zebog was an avid collector of images and yes, memories. Yes, he was. Uh-huh. I mean, to, I, how much you want to, you know, sort of go into the biography, author, whatever, but um, he did do this obsessive collect, or I hate to use the word obsessive, but this sort of avid collecting, he definitely um, did that of images and um, photographs and drawings, et cetera, et cetera. But, mm-hmm. um, I we read I actually read this novel for the first time in a class in a, on the theory of photography mm-hmm. oh, toward the yeah. end of the semester after we had read like you know your standard greatest hits mm-hmm. of photographic theory <laughs> Bach and uh, Susan Sontag et cetera et cetera mm-hmm. and this was kind of you know in the final kind of mm-hmm. penultimate discussion of like text and image together and how that works et cetera et cetera and 
I don't know, I just remember thinking the, the images are not, I mean, you know, we often think of images and texts to be, you know, demonstrative or illustrative or they're supposed mm -hmm. to help but not. under, you know, like in an encyclopedia or whatever. And it's not encyclopedic at all. No. But in, in a way, I think that's kind of, there's this like light, I don't want to say tongue in cheek, but there is this, I think it adds to the, the stress of reading a text like this, if you want to call it stress. Stress? Yeah, stressful, <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult yeah. craft, yeah. It is, and it, yeah, it's It's very difficult to get into. And the images don't oh, yeah. help. They really no. don't. Yeah. And I think that's so counterintuitive mm -hmm. for us as mm -hmm. readers. That it's like it's, this additional text. Yeah, it is. That really doesn't, like for example, this with the stamp of Theresienstadt. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this yeah. This brings up so many things, like the fact that it was a city before it was a, a ghetto, and uh -huh, you uh -huh. know that it had this pre. You know, all of these questions are kind of embedded in this, mm -hmm. in this icon or in this image. But yet, it had like its relationship to the words is completely. It's up to us to really, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, sort of anchor that. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's. I think is it's it's more. Um, I mean, if we're on the path of looking for something, it throws us off more than it puts us back mm -hmm. on, I think. Yeah. Isn't it in, in that way kind of resemble the, the search of the narrator, like who also deals with all these random oh, absolutely. things mm -hmm. that pop up in his head and he doesn't know what to do with Right, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in this way, it would be, you know, paradigmatic for that, but... I mean, I often use them as, like, reading markers, because it, it's hard to put the book down to many paragraphs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You can, I know. Yeah. If, if you put it down, you have to almost go, when you yeah, go, you go, go back, you have to go by several pages to know where you are. Yeah. Exactly. It's frustrating. <laughs> well, it was interesting. I mean, yeah, it is interesting, but frustrating. It's kind of hard for the reader, but mm -hmm. I was wondering if it was kind of easier for Sibon to have those image breaks while he was writing. Oh, probably. What, you know, what, okay, yeah. this one, I'm going to use this, I'm going to use this. Oh, but it probably drove him crazy, right? Does know. he put what does he put on what page? <laughs> no. What is every picture? That's not for the publishers, but yeah, I mean, I think he was like writing and, not, and then he was for the hundred pulling. pictures that are in here. If they have money, he he probably had fifteen hundred to choose from. Yeah, two thousand, twenty-five hundred. Mm. And he didn't put any <coughs> captions. He didn't put any captions. He didn't do any. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. He just wrote and then was mentioning it, and then a picture would appear. Mm-hmm. And you guys were saying the German is the arrangement is slightly different. It's ever so slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. The, the images are the same, but the but they're places. Where they are slightly yeah. different yeah. places. Yeah. But huh. does it really matter? I don't know. I don't I mean, even know. <laughs> you have to read both the translation and the original one too to know if it if it matters or not. How does how is the how does this read in English? It's great. It's beautiful. It, it has this. It's kind of um, mood. Melancholic. Yeah, um, and then also a little, uh, it's melancholic, but it's also a little bit dazed and kind of a, you know, dream speech in a way. It just kind of grabs you. You, you just can't get out of it. I think it reads better in English than in German. Too, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, I've encountered that before. So yeah, which is, I mean, I think that has to do with the fact that he was so immersed in English-speaking culture right. that he almost writes as if he's writing in English but in German. So I think it's, I, that's my impression. What's that mean? That his German that. is not good? No, that the no. German writing no, is not good? sentences that you couldn't say like that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little weird, I think. But I mean, I would not say that about yeah. most German authors. I mean, I, you know, but I think in this case... Right, but he spent decades as a professor exactly. in, uh, right. in England. Was he... Is, He's from Austria. So. Um, yeah. But also, there's, I mean, if you think about languages, you know, so when, maybe I'm getting this wrong now, but when the narrator first encounters Australia, say you're in Belgium, which is a multilingual country, mm -hmm. and then they first speak in French to each mm -hmm, other. Mm -hmm. Now, Australians, you know, who um, spoke German and probably Czech, Czech. as a child, then the moves to, came to him. <laughs> right. Then moves to Wales, you know, mm -hmm. is made to forget the languages he spoke before mm -hmm. and has this education in, in Wales, you know, then eventually um, finds out about his background and then um, goes to, to the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia and then he goes to Paris. There are all, there are all these different levels of translation going on mm -hmm. in the text. So I think if you, I mean, even if, I, 
the German in which this is written. I think it's a strange German somehow. You know, like it's. I think you can kind of say this is somebody who has worked with a number of different languages already, and mm-hmm. then there are all these layers of languages that, go, that are going on with the characters. So I, I don't know if I know how this was in English translation, but when there are passages here in French or in um, or in English, they're not, they're not translated. They're, they're not translated here either. Yeah, but I can some German and yeah, French. some are in French, some are in English here. I don't care. I think it's, I can't remember whether some are in Czech or not, but there is no translation given, you know, so... I wonder why the, they didn't translate that. I think what, it's important because you, you have the sense of you know, being very much in between languages, all these characters, the narrator and Austerlitz and even the us, they're always translating, mm-hmm. you know, and there is no such a thing as the native language or the, the mother tongue, you know? right. the mother is dead, right, she doesn't, so it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think that's an interesting point. It also makes me think of um, Kafka's German. Right, and the whole which, thing with the... Which is a similar kind of situation. It's right. like this, this deterritorialized... Right, the Julius Guattari. Yeah, exactly, that exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't mm. need to rehash that. But, yeah. Um, there is a way in which it's, it has a kind of... It, it's a little off-putting somehow compared to like things that we... Anyway, I don't want to go into this whole what is German, what isn't German, but... Yeah, but I think, little, but there is a, la- yeah. a, a layer of estrangement somehow yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. distance, and and I think it's it's very present in the language, you know, and, and the sentence structure is kind of endless, endless sentences that go on forever and ever, no paragraphs. And I think you you, you do get lost in the, in the text, oh, absolutely. You know, which is kind of the, the point of it all. So like as as Austerlitz is lost wandering around Europe, lost trying to find out yes, the narrator is kind of lost listening to Austerlitz too. And then getting lost in these, you know, in the train stations and in the insane asylums and in the fortresses here. It's 